Okay, there we go. So um, our subject this evening is Paul, uh, Paul and Jesus. <clears throat> I'm going to have a uh, think about uh, what Paul uh, thinks about Jesus um, and what he has to say in his, in his letters. First of all, I thought um, I would just uh, test you and see what you already know. Um, because you'll probably already know a great deal. Um, so given we're a bit few in numbers tonight, we'll not break into groups as we have done previously. So we'll just, we'll just, um, we'll just um, see what anybody has to know. Anything you, can, you, you know about what Paul says about Jesus, anything at all, whether it's a title or anything he says. And I'm going to start picking people out if nobody puts a hand up. <laughs> Okay, emptied himself. All right, anything else? Okay, moving back, back a row. Okay, Um, okay, Uh, let's put expression of God. Yep, says that. That's right. Excellent. Pre-existence. All right. Um, 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 okay, this side's been very quiet so far. Anybody vaguely remember anything that Paul says about Jesus? Any, what does he call him, apart from Jesus? Any, any, any titles? Uh, Savior, no, he does. He does. Savior is. Uh, I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to think. Could, could you give me the, the verse for that? No. <laughs> Savior and Lord. Yep. Christ. That'll do. And we were asking a jest this morning. Um, was that Jesus' surname? God's righteousness. Uh-huh. Have you, have you a particular verse for that? Okay, we'll put it up. I, I'm just trying to think where that comes. God's righteousness. Um, and we'll just put in brackets the word justice beside it. Because, um, as we probably all know by now, um, the word that Paul uses for righteousness when we read it in, um, in the New Testament is the Greek word that can be translated as justice as well. Still okay here? Everybody here all right? Um, uh, and, uh, and actually sometimes gives us a better sense of what, uh, what the, the New Testament authors are talking about when we use justice rather than, than righteousness. Righteousness is sort of a word that's, that's got a certain religious um, sort of uh, meaning about it that's picked up over the years. Anything else? Okay, yes. Um, Son of God, very good. Um, uh, No, that's somebody else. Um, Well, um, people used to think that Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, See? Um, uh, so we'll, we'll leave that one. Um, 
Propitiation. Um, yes. Um, yes. That okay. We, we should we should put that in actually because um, um, let's let's put um, instead of writing um, propitiation, we'll just put we'll just put sin here or, or dealing with sin. Dealing with sin. Yep. Okay. Anything else? Take one or two last ones. Any... Of that yes, that'll do. Um, so, cosmic king. How's that? <laughs> yes. Okay. <clears throat> um, and let's put that one down because that's actually. That's actually a very important word um, in, in, um, in Paul's letters. <clears throat> um, God is the God of peace, um, and, um, and Christ brings peace. Uh, we have peace, Romans 5, um, through uh, what Christ has done. Um, this word here um, is really a reflection of the uh, Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, which has this, the whole sense of human flourishing and well-being. Um, it's not just the absence of war, um, although it certainly includes that, um, but it's this whole sense of human beings flourishing. And whenever we read in the New Testament, th- this word, that the Greek word that, was, that the New Testament writers used for peace was exactly the same word that they read in, the old, in their Old Testament Greek uh, translation uh, for the word shalom. Um, so this is really the, the idea of shalom, of, of God bringing this day of shalom, this day of human flourishing um, to, to, uh, to humankind is actually very important in Paul's, in Paul's thinking. So, yes, that's, that's a good one. So, yep, good, good list there. Um, and, in fact, we'll, we'll come on and have a wee look at each of those um, as we go through. So thank you, Caroline, for um, for teaching us that that song. I know that was uh, that was uh, took a great deal of effort, um, uh, but um, it was uh, a, it's a song that really talks about Jesus, the Messiah, um, and that's that's the way that Paul talks about Jesus. And um, so we need to ask, what did Paul really mean by that? Um, it would seem, as we read his letters, that Paul is preeminently concerned with the. Um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, it's Christ's obedience on the death that counteracts the death bringing disobedience of Adam um, in Romans 5 um, and the divine response to human weakness um, and failure and rebellion uh, centers on Christ's sacrificial death according to Romans 3 and it's God's raising of Christ from the dead which validates and vindicates the Messiah's sacrificial uh, death. So Jesus' death and resurrection uh, was very important for Paul, um, uh, and he does um, uh, focus on that a lot, and we'll come back to that a wee bit later on. But I want to first of all ask, was Jesus' death and resurrection the only part of the historic Jesus that was important for Paul? Um, and very often people try and draw a wedge between Paul uh, and Jesus as if 
Paul is dreaming up some, some new sort of uh, angle uh, on things that's different from, from Jesus. Actually, what Paul says about Jesus' ministry is rather sparse. Born of a woman, Galatians 4, born under the law, i.e. a Jew. Um, uh, he's meek and gentle. He's got compassion. He did not please himself, and so on. So he really has not very much to say specifically about Jesus' life and ministry. And then Colossians 2, uh, uh, 5.16, if indeed we knew Christ according to the flesh, we now no longer know him in that way. Does that mean that the earthly Jesus was not relevant to Paul? Well, actually, it would be very odd if we ended up with the conclusion that Paul didn't really care about the life of Jesus. It would be very surprising, I think, to find followers of Jesus like Paul who were not at least a little curious about the character and content of Christ's uh, life and ministry. And actually, Paul was very concerned to link his own teaching to existing Christian tradition. And there's a number of uh, uh, um, uh, verses there. And he talks about receiving and passing on the tradition that others had passed to him. At this stage, of course, you've got to remember that the Gospels were not yet written. Paul is the first Christian writer. Uh, and the Gospels are not going to be written for probably another at least 30 years. But the material that eventually makes its way onto Mark's pen in the latter half of the first century doesn't suddenly appear. Um, the stories and sayings of Jesus were circulated uh, amongst the Christian congregations uh, widely. Uh, and it would be astonishing if the congregations to which Paul wrote didn't possess their own stock of Jesus' stories and tradition much of which Paul actually probably supplied. We know that Paul spent time with Peter and the other Christian leaders in Jerusalem, according to Galatians 1 and 2. So it's virtually unthinkable that the Jesus tradition would not have been passed on to him. He must have known about it. But he, didn't, he clearly didn't regard his letters as the means of communicating that to the churches. Um, and what's likely is that that this was done at the point at which the churches were established. And then what happens is these letters that Paul writes, well, what we've got to realize is they're not, you know, Paul isn't sitting in a, in a you know, a, a Mediterranean villa um, looking over the med, you know, thinking, uh, now what am I going to write to this church, uh, Galatia? You know, the, there's real problems have arisen. And Paul is writing um, to address these particular issues in each of the churches. Even Romans is like that even though it's a more extended um, sort of uh, letter. Um, so Paul is really responding to practical uh, issues. It's not, in a sense, it's not theology. It's theology on the hoof, shall we say. It's theology applied to particular uh, situations. There's probably nothing that really needs a recapitulation of the Jesus stories. There's one thing that's very striking, though, and that's the parallel between uh, Jesus and Paul's teaching on the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, as we know from uh, Steve's preaching of, of late, was central to um, Jesus' teaching. Now, Paul mentions the kingdom infrequently, but he does use the word justice or righteousness. And he talks frequently about the Holy Spirit. Now, both those ideas indicate that Paul's outlook on the arrival of God's kingdom and Jesus' preaching of the kingdom are actually very close because those are two very important elements of the, the, the arriving kingdom of God. So we might well argue, and, and I did the last time that we, we, we uh, in looking at what the gospel is, that the gospel Jesus preached and the gospel that Paul preached actually were the same. It was all about 
the arrival of Yahweh's kingdom in the person of Jesus the Messiah. And we'll come back to that a wee bit uh, later on. Interestingly, the kingdom featured uh, in... You remember when Jesus was, was, uh, had a lot of conflict with the Pharisees? One of the big areas was over table fellowship. And they were very restrictive about it. But Jesus was willing to eat with sinners. Interestingly, Paul also protested against uh, table fellowship that was based on this sort of Jewish clean-unclean distinctions. Uh, and he, we read about that in Romans 14 and Galatians 2. So it's very likely that Paul both knew and was significantly influenced by his knowledge of the life and ministry of Jesus as one who ate with sinners and who saw the kingdom foreshadowed in such table fellowship. Another feature worthy of note is the use of Abba in the prayer that Paul mentions in a number of places, Romans 8, Galatians 4, for example. Uh, And he talks about Christians being sons, heirs, children of God. That links with what we know of the early Christian use of the Abba prayer um, because it was remembered in Christian circles as a characteristic feature of Jesus' own prayer life. Jesus' prayer was characterized and distinguished by using the Abba address to God. So here, I think, is a very secure link between Paul uh, and Jesus. What's very interesting, too, is when we look at it, some of the the ethical teaching of Jesus uh, and Paul's own moral exhortation in his letters are very, very closely linked. And you can look, as you look at the examples there, Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless those and uh, bless and do not curse. Very similar to what we have in the Gospels. Uh, Romans 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is profane in itself. Again, reminiscent of Mark uh, seven fifteen. there's nothing outside a person able to make him profane. Uh, and then we have the quotation in, in 1 Corinthians 13 about faith and moving mountains. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 um, uh, is about the second coming. Again, matching up very closely with um, uh, some of the words that are used there with Matthew 24. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live at peace amongst yourselves. Mark 9.50, live at peace with one another. So sometimes very, very close uh, relationship between the words that Paul use, uh, uses and the words that uh, Jesus uh, uses. Another aspect that's very, that, that brings out this whole sense of Paul knowing Jesus uh, uh, about his life is the imitation of Christ. He exhorts his congregations to imitate Christ in their behavior. Now that would be strange, would it not, if they didn't know the stories of Jesus and Jesus' teaching. So Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of the Messiah. Um, Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be amongst you, which is also in the Messiah, uh, Jesus. So I think a closer look reveals that Paul is not perhaps as uninterested in the life and teaching of Christ than is sometimes assumed. But to be sure, the, it's more the meaning of of Jesus' life that Paul more clearly uh, explicates for us. Now, we're going to look at four aspects of Jesus that were very, very uh, important for Paul. And the first one is Messiah. So Jesus, Messiah, we're reading it, uh, we're singing about it tonight. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, um, 
the, the Messiah. So this, this word that we have, uh, Christ, is just, um, it, it comes directly from the, the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, Christos, which is uh, a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. <clears throat> that word in Hebrew means anointed. It was used of kings and, and priests. Now, Paul habitually refers to Jesus as Christ or Messiah. It's not just a kind of a loose title. It's actually a very, very important designation for Paul of the role and the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So he preached the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. So first and foremost, before we jump ahead and slot in justification by faith into the gospel, we need to stop and understand what the center of Paul's gospel is. It is Jesus, the Messiah, the one who brings to completion and fulfillment the story of Israel. Jesus is the anointed one, Messiah, the anointed one who sent by God to bring in the new age of Yahweh, long promised by the prophets. Now, Paul, as a Jew of the first, uh, early first century, shared an expectation with his fellow Jews that God would once more enter Israel's history and deliver them from the dark night of exile and pagan oppression and bring in this new age of shalom and blessing. And like many other Jews, Paul shared an expectation that there would be a Messiah figure whom God would use to bring about this new age. What completely surprised Paul, though, was that God did this in Jesus, this troublemaker who had been crucified by the Romans. That was an absolute uh, impossibility as far as Paul was concerned because as a Pharisee, he knew that Deuteronomy said that anyone who hung on a tree was, was cursed. But then it took, it took Jesus, the risen Jesus, to meet Paul on the road to Damascus. And at that point, he realized, okay, if Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means that God has vindicated this man who hung on a tree. And that means he isn't cursed. And that means he actually is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. And Paul tells us about that in Romans 9, 3 to 5. Now, this is of very, very primary importance to Paul. It means that all of God's purposes and plans, the whole of the covenant with Israel, are focused on this man, Jesus. So the gospel for Paul is primarily about God bringing the story of Israel to a climax through Jesus, the Messiah. In doing that, God inaugurates a new day of his reign in the world. He calls everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, to participate in a new world of justice, shalom, and joy. Those are the three words that Paul uh, uses to describe the kingdom of God in Romans 14. Now, Jewish, Jewish messianism was based on Davidic kingship. If we were to look at 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh promises an eternal kingdom to David, and God calls him his son. Now, this goes back to an idea in Exodus where Israel is called Yahweh's son. His, Israel is my firstborn son. So in time, what happens is Israel as is God's son comes to focus on the king who represents the nation. Then we get to Psalm 2, where we have the kingly son of God called Yahweh's anointed or Messiah. So we see the beginnings of a tradition that equates son with the nation, then with the king, 
and then with anointed Messiah. So by the first century AD, there's a very lively hope amongst Jews of a royal Messiah sent by God, uh, and there was all sorts of ideas about how that would work out. But for Paul, it was clear that Jesus was the anointed one and the Davidic king. And that's a a text from Romans uh, uh, chapter 1 that we we, we read and we looked at it uh, last time, where Paul sets out his stall in Romans, and at the very beginning, um, he talks about the Messiah Jesus, the gospel of God, um, uh, his son descended from David according to the flesh, uh, and then declared to be son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So for Paul, Jesus completes and fulfills God's plans to bring salvation to the world through his people Israel. If we had time, we'd map this out, and the salvation story is that progresses through the Old Testament, the first parents turning away from their responsibility to, uh, to be the image of God in the world, to reflect the glory of God, the evil that exists in the world as a result of that, the calling of Abraham through whose descendants um, God promises to bless the whole world, the covenant that God makes with Israel at Sinai, and the expectation that this people would be the means of God dealing with the problem of evil in the world. And then, of course, the failure of Israel to live up to that vocation. But now, for Paul, Jesus is the one true Israelite. He is the one who is totally faithful to Yahweh and who, through his death and resurrection, can be the means of blessing the whole world. And that gives you, I think, some idea of the deep meaning for Paul of the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's the representative uh, of Israel, like the Davidic king. It's he that brings in the new age of the rule of Yahweh to bless all the nations of the world as God had originally promised Abraham. So that one word, Messiah, has, is, such, is so rich in, in its meaning. Uh, and we've, we, we, we just, we very often we just read Jesus Christ and it just, it just rolls off the tongue. And yet behind it is, is a wealth of um, of, um, of understanding of what God is doing in the world. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, it can be worth when you're reading Paul and you come across Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of just reading Christ, almost mentally say, Lord Jesus, Messiah. And it begins to help you get into the, to thinking about um, what, what this actually means. Death and resurrection... Um, this really is the center of gravity of Paul's uh, theology, um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Romans 3.21, uh, Paul has, has previously indicted the whole world uh, of, of being under sin, and he presents Jesus as God's expiation for sins, past and present. Galatians 3, Christ accursed on the cross, is the decisive way in which the blessing of Abraham can come to the Gentiles for whom it's also intended. And in Colossians 2, we get a theological exposition of the effects of Christ's death and resurrection. And of course, you remember in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul's preaching is about Christ crucified, the Messiah crucified. So for Paul, Christ's obedience unto death answered Adam's disobedience. As a result, God vindicated him and highly exalted him. Christ's death is on behalf of all, from 2 Corinthians 5.14. Um, so the Messiah is a representative figure, 
believers die in him, says Paul, and then are raised to new life in him, in Romans 6. Now, interestingly, Paul never really feels it necessary to expound his theology of Christ crucified in any great real logical detail, which is a great pity, because we'd all really like to know. Certainly, it's a sacrifice of atonement. It affects redemption, reconciliation. It deals with sin. But how exactly does it do that? What is the detailed logic of that? Presumably, it was quite clear to Paul and his readers But what is clear is that the death of Christ was absolutely central to the story of the Messiah. What is equally important, though, although you wouldn't think it to hear a lot of preachers, present company accepted, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is far more integral to God's saving righteousness than is often recognized. Christians affirm that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. But somehow I think that the crucifixion is often given more weight as the primary expression of the Christ event. We're often so preoccupied with the death of Christ that the salvation significance of Christ's resurrection becomes largely overlooked. But Paul's gospel knows no divorce between the cross and resurrection and the effect of that. The cross and resurrection are tied tightly together The resurrection gives the cross its meaning. It's almost like a unifying core to to Paul's whole theology and his thinking about what Jesus means. Tom Wright says, Romans is suffused with resurrection. Squeeze this letter at any point and resurrection spills out. Hold it up to to the light and you can see Easter sparkling all the way through. It was vitally important for Paul that Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead. He says so in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching's in vain and your faith's in vain. If Christ hadn't raised Christ from the dead, then Jesus was simply a man that God had cursed, according to Paul's theology. But if he's raised, then God has given his stamp of approval. He's vindicated. And if that is the case, he really is the Messiah. And God's long-awaited kingdom has broken into the present world and everything, everything has changed. The physical resurrection of Jesus is crucial for all of Paul's theology. And for Paul, the resurrection was a matter of reliable eyewitness testimony. And he talks about that at some length in 1 Corinthians 15. And the meaning of this is very important for Paul with respect to believers. Romans 6, 5, Paul says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, for Paul, believers are, quote, in in Christ, in the Messiah. And so they participate in his death, thus they die to sin. That results in a new way of life, serving God rather than sinful desires but also they participate in his resurrection, something that has got future relevance and present relevance. 1 Corinthians 15 shows us that Christian hope is not based on um, some sort of disembodied existence in a celestial city. It's actually physical, bodily resurrection, as does Romans 8. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised 
Messiah Jesus from the dead, will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And Romans 6 makes it clear that the believer participates in the resurrection of Jesus and as a result of that is thus able to live a just, righteous life before God. Believers are baptized to Christ, crucified with him, but also raised with him. And that has implications not only for the eschaton, but for the here and now. Paul, actually, you read Romans 6, you read Romans 8, in terms of what has happened to believers and the way in which he's taken us from one era, um, one realm, and put us into another realm. Um, and, and, And Colossians 1 as well. And you realize that for Paul, something actual has happened to believers. Things are different. Things are different. His expectations, actually, of believers sometimes um, is quite high. Number three, we're getting on quite well here. For Paul, and somebody got it earlier on, didn't they? Um, Paul, Christ is pre-existent. He's the eternal son of God. He just assumes that Christ is the eternal son of God and a whole raft of, of references there. As part of this, he is the agent of creation and redemption. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, yet for us there is one God. This is a very significant text, actually, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, verse 6. Um, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's reshaping the Jewish Shema. Now, the, if, you, if you don't know, the Jewish Shema is the most significant prayer for Jews. It was recited twice a day. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And here, Paul reshapes this prayer to embrace both the Father and the Son. So the one Lord of the Shema becomes Jesus Christ. The assumption here is of Christ's pre-existence, his role as an agent of creation. So Paul is really including Jesus in the identity of Yahweh, of God himself. Yahweh was the one who, who is the creator, who gives life. Only Yahweh. And yet Paul, as a Jew, a few years after Jesus has died and rose again, is including this man Jesus in that divine identity. That is very significant for us. Um, sometimes there's an idea put about that it took a long while actually for, for the first Christians to decide that Jesus was really divine. Um, uh, you know, they thought about it and there was a period of time and on balance, they, they came to see that. But actually, the reality is when we look at read Paul's letters written within 15 years plus of the first Easter, it's clear that the first Christians were worshiping Jesus as divine. We get further elaboration of this in Colossians 1.15. He is the, we read it earlier on, David. Thank you for that. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Again, this is, this is um, 
amazing, amazing statements by first century Jew to make of uh, this Jesus, that he is the creator. Uh, part of this pre-existence idea is this, this whole idea of an impoverished redeemer. The key text here is Philippians uh, 2.6, and yeah, we got that um, a wee bit earlier on. Um, Jesus, who, although he's in the form of God, didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So Christ's prior, prior existence here is assumed in this little section of Philippians 2. He's in the form of God. Equality of God is his by his nature, but he didn't selfishly try to hold on to this. On the contrary, Paul uses a very exceptionally strong metaphor here about slavery. Christ chose to put himself out and to assume the form of a slave, simply stated, and it's assumed that the Philippians will readily assent to this. This, again, is a very remarkable um, line to be taking in probably the early 40s, um, a short time after, after Jesus' death. And the Son is the sent one. Um, we we ha- get this in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Again, the assumption is that Christ is divine, that he had a pre-existence, and then he was born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, born as a Jew. Um, this is the incarnation that Paul clearly has in mind here. The last thing I want to um, talk about is... Uh, Jesus as Lord. Now, this is at the very, very heart of of Paul's proclamation of the gospel. Um, It's this confession, Jesus is Lord. And this doubtless goes back to Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. Uh, Paul says simply in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, I saw the Lord. He didn't think of this as a visionary experience but as similar to the resurrection appearances to many before the ascension. Uh, And of of prime importance to the very earliest Christian communities is Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies um, your footstool. Um, This this was a very important text for first century Jews. uh, And actually, this is the Old Testament text that is cited or alluded to most in the New Testament. It's a very important uh, text. And Paul specifically uses this text to speak of Christ's uh, present reign in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So the Messiah is the Lord. He currently reigns over all. For Paul, the crucified Messiah, was raised to life by God and has become the Lord of the cosmos. Paul's gospel basically is Isaiah's gospel. Looked at this a wee bit last time around. Remember Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And that is Isaiah's gospel. And that is, that is Jesus' gospel. And that is Paul's gospel. The long-awaited return to Zion of Israel's God, the arrival, the dawning of a new day of God's reign has now arrived in and through the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, God's kingdom has broken into the world and the Messiah is now the Lord of the cosmos. We got that one earlier as well. 
And we have a number of verses that we could, uh, we could look at. Now, the Greek word that Paul uses here um, is, is um, the word kurios. And it's, again, it's used in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament version of, of the Bible that Paul read. It's used to translate the, the, the divine name in Hebrew, Yahweh. So for a Jew of the first century, kurios, this Greek word Lord, referred to Yahweh. And Paul uses this title exclusively of Jesus and never as a reference to God. He uses another Greek word, theos, for God. Kurios, the Old Testament word for Yahweh, is the word that Paul uses for Jesus. That is very significant. And of course, Philippians 2 Um, we've already um, talked about it a little bit, is very significant. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Paul here, actually, you may or may not know, is quoting uh, almost verbatim Isaiah 45, 23, where Yahweh says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And Paul takes that text and he uses it of Jesus. Effectively putting Jesus in the same status as Yahweh. Jesus now has the name which is above every name. It's to Jesus that every knee will bow. That is a position that is reserved for Israel's God. And Paul now takes that text and uses it of Jesus. And if we flip back a couple of pages to Romans 9, uh, verse 5, uh, Paul says of Israel, To them belong the patriarchs from the race according to the flesh. Is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever? Again, another amazing text for a Jew of this period uh, to, uh, to, to write. So Jesus then, according to Paul, is to be identified within the divine identity and is the absolute Lord of the universe. Part of that is that he takes on another role that's traditionally assigned to Israel's, uh, to Israel's God, Yahweh, and that is the eschatological uh, judge. We'll not look at these in any detail, but um, the, the judgment um, that, that Yahweh makes on, uh, on the world and on evildoers uh, is in the, uh, in the hands of Jesus. So for Paul, Jesus has been exalted to the highest place in the universe. His reign is not just something for the future, though. Actually, for Paul, it has already begun. Eventually, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and the wicked will be judged. And indeed, Colossians 1, all things will be reconciled to him, whatever Paul has in mind there, not sure. But even now, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, is, Isaiah's gospel, our God reigns. And according to Paul, that means Jesus, the Messiah, reigns. He is Lord over all. Now, for Paul, that has far-reaching implications for the way that the world is now. In Paul's day, the propaganda of the Roman Empire was forced down the throats of the populace that Caesar is Lord. You read, this, you read this in all the inscriptions as you walk down in the forum. Caesar is Lord. Caesar was proclaimed as Savior. He was proclaimed as Lord. He was proclaimed as Son of God. And Paul, it's not um, uh, uh, surely significant that Paul writes using these terms right to the heart of the empire in his letter to, uh, to the Romans. Caesar is Lord is the political and economic reality under which you must live. But for Paul, if Jesus is Lord, 
then Caesar is not Lord. There is an alternative reality, which Paul depicts in Colossians 1.13 that David read for us earlier on, that declares that all the Caesars of the world, all the despots, all the tyrants, all the powers that vie for the allegiance of human hearts and minds are but imposters. There is a greater truth that has broken into the world. The rule of God through the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord. And Paul's challenge, I think, coming from that reality to believers in the first century and to believers through the centuries and to the present time is a very real one. Dare we believe that there is an alternative lordship, an alternative way of being human that is all about peace, shalom, human flourishing in all its meaning. That we as God's people can reflect and model and demonstrate until the day of the Lord comes in all its glory. And that, I think, is all I want to say tonight. So maybe we'll just uh, have a prayer to finish. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. We thank you that he's become Lord of our lives, and we pray that you would enable us to live uh, reflecting that lordship, reflecting the life um, and the blessing and the shalom that comes from allegiance to you, Lord. Give us your grace to, to live like that, to live like that in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.